good to be here the first Sunday of the year, as has been said already as well. Uh, it's an exciting time of the year. Um, I'm excited that I get to preach on the first Sunday. Actually, last year I think I got to preach on the first Sunday as well, which is always, ah, man, everything is possible on the first Sunday of the year. Everything is possible for this coming year. I know that Ruben and I, we had something pretty life-changing in the first week of the year. We decided that, so Jade is six months today. Happy birthday, Jade. <laughs> Happy six-month birthday, Jade. Um, so she's six months. She's a grown-up. So we put her in her own room, and it has changed our lives. <laughs> Not only that she is in her own room, but we began to sleep train Jade, which this is something that before I had a baby, the only thing that really, really scared me about becoming a mom was routine. I hate routine. If you know me, you know that I love spontaneity. I love just, you know, going for dinner just five minutes before eight because that's what you feel like doing, packing your bags, going on a trip. And I thought, oh, if I have a baby, I'll have to deal with routine. Um, but this week, we decided, okay, she's six months. I think she needs some routine in her life. And so we began to sleep train her, which means that she goes to bed at a certain time. She puts herself to sleep and it's life-changing. I love routine now. I look forward to routine uh, because it just makes our lives so much easier. And, and, and we, everything is possible. Not only is Jade sleep trained, but we're going to work out at least five times a week or maybe, maybe once in, rea in like being realistic. But we're going to work out five times a week. We're going to be uh, committed to reading our Bible every day. We're going to lose that weight that we wanted. We're going to Oh, so many things. Learn that language that we've been meaning to learn. I know that one year I had a New Year's resolution that I was going to learn how to play the bass. My brother-in-law was in a band, and he was the bass player, and he was super cool, like Red Hot Chili Peppers type of cool. And so I was like, that's a cool, that's a really cool instrument. And I bought a bass, and I did learn how to play the bass. So I actually went through with my New Year's resolution. So if yours is to learn an instrument, everything is possible. You can learn an instrument. You can learn how to surf. So many things. But we look forward to not only the next year, we look forward to the next decade. And I know that many of you, before the new year came around, you were not only looking forward to the new year, but you were reflecting on the past year, reflecting on what happened. I know that many people on Instagram were, were putting photos of not only what happened in the last year, but what happened in the last decade. We just closed a decade and we started a new one. And I know that so many things have happened in the last decade. For me personally, I've lived in three different countries. I graduated, I got married, we started the Lisbon Project, we started church, we had a baby. So many things, our lives just completely changed. My parents went from being parents to being grandparents of five. And it's just really crazy the amount of things that have happened in the past decade and I can imagine for you you've lived in different countries you've had children maybe some of you have become grandparents uh, maybe you've you've gotten promotions you've changed careers all these things that have happened in the past decade and now as we look to the new decade and all this time that is to come one can only imagine what's going to happen one can only imagine the people that you're going to meet the relationships you're going to enter the things you're going to go through, maybe some tough things, maybe some struggles and some trials that we'll go through, but the things that we'll learn, the people that we'll become. And as I thought about this, and as I thought about not only this next decade, but especially this next year, I thought, who will I be at the end of 2020? 
And I, and I was having this conversation with Ruben yesterday as we walked along the beach. This is the beautiful thing about Portugal, these sunny winters. And so we're walking along the beach, and I was saying, am I really different since we met? And now we met three years ago about. We've been married for two and a half years. And, and I was saying, am I really that different from when we got married? Because he's different, definitely, <laughs> for the better. Um, but we've changed so much in one year. And who will we be at the end of 2020? Personally, who will you be? I know that the thoughts and the assumptions that I based my actions on in the beginning of 2019 are not the same thoughts and assumptions that I hold today, to base my actions on today, my behavior on today. The things that I know, the, the things that I've lived with Christ have matured me, have deepened my faith. Who will we be at the end of this year? Who will we be as a church at the end of this year? I know that we've gone through a lot, we've changed location, we've grown in number, but who will we be as a church at the end of 2020? And as I thought about this, the Lord took me to a portion in the Bible where Jesus very plainly says who he wants his church to be. We find this in the book of Revelation. Jesus is saying not only the things that he loves about the church, the things that he, that he holds close to his heart, the, thing that, the things that make him proud of the church, but he also warns us against a few things. He says the things he doesn't want the church to be, the things that we should watch out for and be careful about. So we're going to start today in the first Sunday of the year. We're going to start a message series called Dear Church, a message from Jesus. And we're going to base, base this message series on a letter written in Revelation. Now, I know what you're thinking. Revelation. We're actually going to do a message series on this book of Revelation. And I, and I know what you're thinking because we hesitate to go to this book. And, and I'll be honest, I hesitate to go to this book. I hesitate to preach on this book because it's Revelation. Revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypse, and when we think of apocalypse, we think end times, disaster, sci-fi movies about the end of the world. <laughs> we think of this book as just being about all these signs and, and wonders and weird language and, and pictures that we can't quite interpret. <laughs> the book of Revelation is rooted in the Old Testament. 278 of the 404 verses of Revelation, that's almost 70% of all verses in the book of Revelation, refer to the Old Testament. And so because we're not so familiar with the culture and the, and the history and the setting of the Old Testament, and we're not even that familiar with all of Scripture of the Old Testament, no wonder we really can't understand Revelation. I know that I miss a lot of the references that it's making because I'm not as familiar as maybe I could be. But here's the thing about this crazy, very different kind of book. It begins... In Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, by saying, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. And so because they neglect the book of Revelation, so many people miss out on the blessing of this book. This book of Revelation gives us much more than information for prophetic speculation. The point of Revelation was not so that we could argue about theology and argue about my interpretation versus your interpretation and this is how the world will end. No, this is how the world will end and the rapture will be first and then Jesus will... Oh, that is not the point of Revelation. 
The book reveals things to keep. And if we understand these things that which we are meant to keep, it will change the way that we live our lives. The Bible is meant to be practical. The Bible is meant to be transformational. And yes, it reveals things to come, but it reveals them so that we may change the way that we live our lives today. So the name Revelation comes from the first word, from the first word of the book in Koine Greek, as I said, apocalypsis, which as even though we refer or we, we associate it with the end of times, apocalypsis simply means an unveiling or revealing. The revelation from Jesus Christ, in the sense that it belongs to Jesus. Not only is Jesus himself doing the revealing, he is the one who is revealing, but he is the object being revealed. And so if we catch everything else in this book, but we miss Jesus, we've missed the whole point. In verse 2, we see that the book was written by a man named John. And most people believe that this John was the Apostle John, the same that wrote the Gospel of the same John that wrote the Gospel of John and the letters 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John that we find in the Bible. And it is a complicated book. It is difficult to understand. You can't really just read over it. You, you have to take some time to study and to try to understand the, the symbolisms and, and all that it means. But I have good news for you today. The first three chapters of Revelation, which are the chapters that we are going to focus on in this message series, are literal. They're quite easy to understand. They're not, they're not as symbolic. They're, they don't have as many signs and crazy things to understand. It's just the first three chapters are a letter written to seven churches. Jesus appears to, to John, and he says to John in Revelation chapter 1, verse 11, Jesus says to him, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And so John is having a vision. He sees Jesus, and Jesus says, just write this down. I have a message for my church. And these are not figurative churches. These are actual churches that existed in Asia Minor at the time, what is today Western Turkey. And so it's as if Jesus said, as if Jesus appeared to John and was like, I have a message for Riverside, for Hillsong, for Bethel, for Elevation, for C3, and whatever other church was out there. And some people believe that, that these letters that were written to these seven churches are just historical. So we look at these letters, and with these churches, we can, we can learn from other people's mistakes. Other people, and I tend to fall into this category, believe that these letters from Jesus were written to these churches, but for the church today as well. I believe that what Jesus was saying to these churches was not only for them at the time, but would be for us today, the way that he wants the church to be. So what we're going to do is we're going to literally read somebody else's mail, and we're going to learn from it. We're going to be changed by it. We're going to be challenged by it. And so today, we're going to focus on the first letter, a letter to the church of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus uh, is an interesting place to start. And it's the first church that Jesus addresses, possibly because John was imprisoned in the island of Patmos, which you can see right there. 
an island just off the coast of Turkey. He was imprisoned there probably because at the time the Romans were heavily persecuting any Christians and so he was probably imprisoned for his faith and he is there and so if a messenger took whatever John wrote to these churches, if a messenger took those letters, he would probably arrive at Ephesus first. Or maybe Jesus addresses this church first because of its importance in the province at the time. It was the capital of the province at the time. But Ephesus was a world-class city. It was a commercial hub. It was situated right on the Aegean Sea, which comes off of the Mediterranean Sea. And so it was a gateway for people from all over the known world to come and to, to do business in Ephesus. The Agora, if you see ruins of, of Ephesus today, I think there's a picture in the, yeah, there you go. These, this is a picture of what it looks like today, but there's all sorts of videos and other photos that you can see, and maybe some of you have been there. I definitely got curious to go to Turkey after studying for this message. But the Agora was like this square marketplace that existed, and people would come from all over the place to conduct business, to invest, to, to barter, to trade, to make purchases. It was like the Wall Street of Asia, Ephesus. It was a religious hub as well. Still today, you see ruins of a temple built to Artemis. Artemis was a false goddess of fertility. And people would come from all over, pilgrims from all over the known world would come to Ephesus to worship this goddess. In many ways, the economy revolved around this pagan worship. In Acts chapter 19, you read of a man named Demetrius. And Demetrius was a silversmith, and the Bible says that, that he got angry at Paul and his friends for preaching the word of God because this God didn't need statues. He didn't need any false little trinkets. And so the silversmiths and all the craftsmen that were making money out of this were getting angry with Paul. And so the Bible says that they seize his two companions. Their names are, let me go back, Gaius and Aristarchus. And they seize them because they're angry. Stop preaching about this God. Stop preaching about this king of kings that you say died and rose again because you're putting us out of business. And so this all, Ephesus was also a religious hub. People came from all over the world to worship this false goddess. And so there's ruins of a library still today. There's ruins of a brothel still today. This city was the New York or London or Beijing at the time. And in the midst of all this, God was faithful to his church. There was a church in Ephesus that in the midst of all this pagan worship, in the midst of all this popularity and culture, the church was growing strong. The church was focused on who Jesus Christ was. And we know that, that the letter was written to Ephesus around 95 AD, 95 years after Jesus Christ. And the church is going strong in the midst of persecution, in the midst of paganism, in the midst of idolatry and sexual immorality. The church is focused on exalting and worshiping Jesus Christ. How amazing is that, that Jesus was faithful to his church. We know as we read the Bible that Paul ministered in this church for three years, that Apollo served in this church, that Aquila and Priscilla, they also served in this church. We know that even, who was it, Timothy served in this church. And so God was bringing people from all over the world to strengthen the Ephesian church. 
And I find that beautiful. Because as I look at Lisbon today, as I look at how popular Lisbon has been in the past few years, since 2016, immigration in Lisbon has just spiked. There are people coming all over, whether it's for the Web Summit or for other kinds of business or for tourism, for holidays, for vacation, for a, a gateway into Europe as people more easily get documents here in Portugal. For so many reasons, people are coming to the city and yet God is faithful to his church. When Ruben and I felt the calling to start Riverside Church in Lisbon, we prayed to God and we said, okay, God, we, we'll do it, but we can't do it alone. We can't possibly lead a church alone. We need people to give of their gifts. We need people to really live this thing in their universities, in their workplaces, in their homes. And God brought so many of you to this place from so many different places from so many different backgrounds with different languages, different personal experiences, and God brought you to this place. And, and I don't know exactly why or what brought you to Portugal or what brought you to Lisbon in the year of 2020, but I do know that God is faithful to his church and that he wants to use you in this place. I do know that he wants to use you to be a light in your workplace. I do know that he wants to use your gifts for his glory. Not that you may gain wealth for yourself. Not that you may gain comfort for your family alone. But that you may exalt his name. That you may be a light that shines in his name. That shines his name. Isaiah chapter 43 verse 6 through 7 says, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. How amazing that God is faithful to the church in Ephesus. In the midst of all that, and God is faithful to the church in Lisbon. So let's begin the letter. Jesus begins his letter to the church in Ephesus. And this is how it starts. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Okay, wait. <laughs> I said that the first three chapters would be literal and would be easy to understand, and now Jesus begins the letter with stars and lampstands, and we're not sure what he's talking about here. So we have to go back to chapter 1, where John has a vision of Jesus. And John sees Jesus walking among seven golden lampstands, lampstands that are shining a light. He sees Jesus walking among these lampstands and holding seven stars in his hands. And now Jesus understands John's confusion and our confusion today. And so he explains in verse 20 of chapter 1 what, what this is. He says, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So when Jesus refers to angels, he says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Angels comes from the Greek word angelos, which is simply defined as a messenger. Seven stars are the messengers of the seven churches. Now, messengers, we can conclude that he's talking about the representatives of those seven churches, the human leaders of those seven churches. We can even conclude he's talking about the pastors of those seven churches. Now, by no means are we angels, <laughs> far from it, but we are messengers of the word of God to the church. 
And so he's, he's saying, I hold them in my right hand. And by saying this, he, he's, he's providing comfort for the leadership of the church, saying, I hold you. He's also saying that I, I, I'm holding you in my right hand for strategic purpose. I want to use you. And he's also saying, you are accountable to me. I hold the leadership in my right hand. And then he says, and the seven lampstands represent each church. Each church shining a light in the darkness. Now, if we go back to the Old Testament, we see that the high priest, one of the duties of the high priest, and the high priest at the time in the Old Testament was a mediator between the people and God. And so he would go into the tabernacle, and we know that one of his duties was to make sure that the lampstand or that the lamp was shining a light before God. He would have to tend to the wick and put oil and make sure that the light was always shining before God. And now we see Jesus, and we read in Hebrews that Jesus is our great high priest, our great mediator between us and God the Father. And he says he is walking among the lampstands which represent the church, making sure the church shines bright before God. He is caring for the church, making sure that we shine a light in the darkness. And so we continue the letter. Now it'll get easier and more simple to understand. Jesus says, I am the one who cares for the church. This is, I'm the one who's writing to you. I'm the one who's pouring my heart out to you right now. I'm the one who's tending, who's taking care of you. I'm the one who's speaking. And he goes on in Revelation chapter 2. Verse 2 through 3, he's speaking to the church of Ephesus, and he says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. So here is Jesus, our Savior, the Son of God, he has something to say to the church in Ephesus and something to say to us today. And out of all the things he could choose to say first, he says, I know. Two very simple words, but two very powerful words. Have you ever found yourself going through something that you can't quite put into words? You can't quite explain there's just so much emotion and so much confusion or so much struggle or so much hurt or so much pain that you can't quite explain what you're feeling. You don't know who to open up to because you don't know if you can trust them and you don't know if you can open to them because who says that they'll understand what you're going through? The church in Ephesus and the Christians in Ephesus were going through a lot. We understand through the letter and the rest of the letter, that they were devoted to God. I mean, these Christians, they were going to church every Sunday. They were going to Bible study, and they were eager to get into the Word of God. They were going to the prayer meetings. They were at worship practice. They were giving of their gifts. They were giving of their tithes. In a pagan society, in a pagan environment where idolatry flourished, they were faithful to Jesus Christ. They were the minority, and yet they were steadfast in their identity as Christ followers. And maybe thanks to their faith, they'd lost some friends, they'd lost some jobs, they'd lost some opportunities. They had gone through so many struggles for the sake of Christ's name. And the first thing that Jesus tells them is, I know. 
And so as we begin this year, we can be confident that Jesus sees our lives. He sees our struggles. He sees our devotion to him. And he knows. He knows that we give it our best. He knows that so often I get here before you to preach and I feel unworthy. He knows. He knows that Jamil was sick all week, that Yannick was working, that Angel was having the only holiday she's had for a while, that, that uh, Doris, my apologies, <laughs> that Doris was enjoying the little time she had with her husband while he was here, and yet they're here worshiping God. They gave of their time on Friday night to come practice for two and a half hours to be here today to lead us in worship. He knows. He knows that sometimes you don't feel like it, but you still come to church. He knows that sometimes you have to sacrifice at work because your boss or, or your colleague tempts you with something that will provide a shortcut or gives you more work so that you can't be faithful to God, and yet you say no and you are faithful to the Lord. He knows the sacrifices you've made. He knows your struggle. He knows your devotion to him. He knows the sacrifices you've made for the sake of his name. He knows your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. And because he knows, the Bible says in Hebrews, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now this fills me with joy. This strengthens my faith because I know that going into 2020, no matter how tired I feel, no matter how unworthy I feel, no matter how unqualified I feel, he knows my devotion. And when nobody else sees it, when nobody else understands what I'm going through, when nobody else even imagines the things that I'm going through, he knows. And I can come to him in my time of need. I can come to him for strength and for healing and for encouragement. He knows. And so Jesus commends the church in Ephesus. He says, well done. I see your devotion. I see it all. And he commends them for their sound doctrine. He says they, they tested people who claimed to be apostles and were not. In verse 6, later on, we read that they hated the practices of the Nicolaitans. Now, it doesn't say that they hated the people. It says they hated the practices of the Nicolaitans. Now, we don't know much about these people, but we do know that they professed to be Christians and were actually practicing something completely contrary to the word of God. They hated that hypocrisy. The Ephesians were focused on the word of God. They were devoted to the truth. They were no-nonsense Christians. They were adamant on upholding the word the truth of the word of God, you either live this thing or you don't. That's how the Ephesians lived. And, and I think we have something to learn from that. Jesus cherishes that. Jesus says, well done. I see that you've done this. In, in Ephesians, in the book of Ephesians, we read that Paul, Paul warns them and says, people from all over the world are going to come to Ephesus and they're going to claim that they, that they are adding to the word of God and that they've just gotten this new revelation about what Jesus wants for you, but test them. And I think we have something to learn from them because they heeded to Paul's warning. We have to uphold the sound doctrine of the word of God. And nowadays there are so many podcasts. 
There are so many movements, so many YouTubers and Instagrammers claiming to preach the word of God. And we have to be careful not to be swiped away by how the preacher preaches, but we have to focus on what the preacher preaches. And I ask not only of the podcast and the things that, that so many of us listen to, but I ask that of Reuben and I. When we get up to preach the word of God, test it. Go into the word. Is what we're saying really aligned with what the Bible says? Come to us. Speak to us. Debate with us. We need to be focused on the word of God and its truth. But then Jesus goes on to something after he commends them after he says, this is what I love in you. He goes on to something that disappoints his heart. He tells them in verse 4, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You see, truth and love are hard to balance. Some people have forsaken truth in the pursuit of love. In efforts to find love, truth becomes relative. Your truth is what feels right to you, and my truth is what feels right to me. And all of a sudden, there is no right or wrong, because if I was to tell you you were wrong, I would not be loving you. We misquote Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus tells us not to judge lest ye be judged. And we, we think that means that we should coexist with sin and just turn a blind eye when our brother struggles. Just turn a blind eye when our brother is is falling into sexual immorality. Just turn a blind eye when we see corruption. Just turn a blind eye to all that we know is wrong in the word of God and all of a sudden you end up with a church that is full of smiling people but people who are not living according to the word of God. And then other people forsake love in the pursuit of truth. And the Ephesian church they fell into this second category. They were so concerned with living righteously, with preaching sound doctrine, with keeping each other accountable before God, that they abandoned love along the way. Church became about the things you do and making sure that we're not politically politically correct and just calling things the way that they are and, and preaching the word of God the way that it is and calling you out when you make a mistake that they forgot how to say it, how to call people out, how to speak to one another. They forgot love along the way. Actually, the Bible says not that they lost it. It says that they left it. They forsook love along the way. They were falling into religiosity as their hearts became detached from the heart of Jesus. Not too long ago, I was, uh, I was looking out my balcony, and some of you have been to our house, and so we have this balcony, and just in front, we have uh, a car park, And I was looking over because we have a tiny view to the ocean. We can see the ocean there behind. So we can say we have an ocean view apartment. (laughs) But it's just there in the horizon. And I was looking out, enjoying the sun. And I looked down at the car park, and I see the sweetest scene. There was an old man, probably maybe like in his 70s, teaching his wife how to ride a bicycle. And as a millennial does, I took out my phone, I Instagrammed it, because it just melted my heart. There's something special about seeing an older couple do the things they did at first. There's something special about seeing an older couple still holding hands as they stroll along the beach. Something special about seeing an older couple compliment each other, genuinely compliment each other. Maybe not with the same honeymoon excitement 
they had at first. And just this week I was, or last week I was with a friend of mine, she's getting married in August, and she was telling me, you know, my fiance and I, we just don't fight. We just don't argue. There's nothing really to argue about. And I just felt like saying, oh, honey, <laughs> you just wait. <laughs> but there's something special about seeing an older couple that is so loving to each other. Not with that honeymoon, naive excitement, but with the love that has gone through some things. With the love that is still committed, just with that same commitment as when they first said, I do. There's something special about seeing them not fall into routine or take each other for granted, but cherish that love. Be thankful, be grateful for that love. And so Jesus is talking to this church and he says, I know the things you're doing. I know the things you're going through. I know how devoted you are and I'm pleased with you. I'm so proud of you for the way that you have been faithful to me. But I can also see straight through you. And I can see that you don't love me like you did. And because of that, you can't possibly love each other like you're meant to. There's something uneasy about walking into a church that no longer has their first love. Maybe the welcome team is doing their job, and maybe the worship sounds nice, and maybe the pastor can preach a, a, a message based on sound doctrine, but when there's love missing, everything becomes pointless. It becomes religious. It becomes a ritual. It becomes a place of tradition, and you can feel it. You can sense it in your spirit. The Bible says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If you do signs of wonders, if you use your gift, if you play guitar amazingly well, if you preach and everybody says amen but you do not have love, it's pointless. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Man, we can experience amazing miracles in this place. We can see people being healed. We can see God provide money where there was no money. We can move into a place three times the size of this place. But if we do not have love, we have nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. If we are committed to the Lisbon Project, that's the organization we run throughout the week here at church. If we help migrants and refugees, give them access to jobs and access to housing and access to education and a place of community, but we do not have love, man, it's all pointless. We can become this great organization, but it's pointless. And this church, Riverside Lisbon, we have grown so much in the past two years. We've experienced so much. Maybe you haven't been here for the past two years. Maybe you've just been here for the past few months or few weeks. But we have gone through a lot. We have labored for the kingdom. We have been committed to this cause. We have stories to tell of our victories. We have stories to tell of our struggles. But as we move forward, not only into this new year, but into this new decade, may we never forsake our first love. I want us to serve him never out of obligation, never out of duty or habit or culture, but I want us to ser serve and to be here 
out of our love for Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Revelation, it refers to Jesus in the first chapter as the one who loves us. And some translations say the one who loved us. And I love this version and this translation in the past tense because it's pointing not just the general past, it's pointing to that moment on the cross. The one who loved us. For God so loved the world that he gave his son and on the cross he demonstrates the immensity of his love. This is the one we serve when we come to church, when we serve him in our universities, when we serve him and we shine a light in our workplaces, when we're at home and we're faithful to him. It's out of gratitude to Jesus Christ. He is worthy. That's what we sang. He is worthy of every breath that we breathe. He is worthy of every relationship that we have. He is worthy of our sacrifice. He is worthy of our obedience to the one who loved us, to the one who loves us. I want us to love each other better and deeper. And I think Jesus was in this, when he speaks to the Ephesian church, He's not only talking about forsaking their first love for him, but that has an effect on the way that we love each other. When we lose that first love for Jesus, we lose the love for each other. And the Bible says in 1 Peter 4, 8, and this is what I envision for our church in 2020 and for this next decade and for as long as we're around. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins, even despite our differences, even despite our shortcomings, despite our personalities that will inevitably clash. There's something special about this church that not only are we non-denominational, meaning there are Anglicans and Baptists and Lutherans and all sorts of different faith backgrounds here, but we're an international church. Meaning that not only do we speak different languages, but we have radically different ways of doing things, different ways of loving each other, different ways of thinking, different ways of expecting relationships to be the way they should be. Despite all of our differences, let us love one another deeply with a love that covers a multitude of shortcomings, a multitude of weaknesses, a multitude of wrongdoings. Let's be intentional about loving Christ with this first kind of love. I don't want to be a church going through the motions. I'm not interested in number. I'm not interested if the worship sounds exactly as it should sound, even though we do want to do things with excellence. I don't want to be a church that just serves an amazing breakfast, but people are just going through the motions. God can see straight through that. And the consequences for forsaking love are serious. Jesus says in the letter, he goes on in verse 5 and he says, Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So what happens when we don't have love? We no longer shine. The church becomes an organization. It functions. It does what churches are meant to do, but it's lost its purpose. It's lost its power. Remember how you used to pray before you started praying in a repetitive way that just sounds nice to everybody else so they can say amen. 
Remember how you used to be eager to get into the word of God because it was all so new to you and you wanted to hear from God. You wanted to have revelation from God into your life. Remember how eager you used to be with, to be with other Christians. You just wanted to be with other Christians and have fellowship with them. Before you got annoyed at all the little things they do and all the little ways they fail. Remember the things you did at first. Remember the gratitude you felt for the cross when you first encountered it. Reuben was speaking to someone recently, someone who has recently become a Christian, and they were just in tears, overwhelmed, saying, I can't hold back the tears. I'm, I'm going through different places and just doing routine things in my day, and when I think about the cross and when I think about Jesus, I just have tears flowing down my face. Remember how overwhelmed you used to feel when you understood the power of the cross before we took it for granted, before we started taking Jesus and his provision and his faithfulness for granted. Remember that. Do the things you used to do at first. So as we move forward into 2020, we can be sure that Jesus is faithful. Now I'm going to ask the worship band to, to come up. And I love that I didn't speak with Jamil when she chose the songs. I didn't, at the beginning of this week, to be honest, I still didn't know what in the world I was going to preach today. And that's when Jamil was choosing the songs. And I love that all her songs were a declaration of love for Jesus. Saying, God, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. I love you. I honor you. Jesus, we love you. Is that what we're going to sing now? Yeah. Jesus, we love you. That's what we're going to declare to him. And not just in an emotional way. I don't, I don't want us to have an emotional moment that then doesn't translate into the rest of our week. I want us to have a moment of decision. Jesus, I'm coming back to my first love. I'm coming back to the things I used to do at first so that everything I do isn't just going through the motions. I don't want to come to church feeling empty. I don't want to come to church just to do my thing and then leave. I want to be changed. I want to be transformed. And most of all, I want to be used. I want to shine a light. I love that Jesus is walking amongst the seven lampstands, caring for the church, making sure that they are shining a light because he cares about the city of Ephesus and all the people that were coming to this city for all sorts of different idolatrous and pagan related reasons, and he cares about Lisbon. He cares about the people that are coming to this city. He cares about every company that you see, every office building that you see. He cares about the people in the parks. He cares about people that are living in small apartments, people that are living in luxurious condominiums. He cares, and he needs the church to shine bright. That is why we are focusing on Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3 in this next series because we want to hear from Jesus, who do you want us to be as a church? What is your heart for us? How do we shine bright and how do we shine brighter in this next year and in this next decade? How do we become the church you want us to become? And we have a lot to learn from these seven churches that Jesus speaks to. So we can be confident going into 2020 that he sees he sees the way that we sacrifice. He sees the way that we labor. He sees the way that we are faithful to him, even when it costs us so much. 
even when it's hard, even when it's difficult, even when we can't put it into words for others, even when others don't see, Jesus sees. And so we can come to him in our time of need. We can come to him for comfort. We can come to him for clarity. We can come to him for strength because he sees and he knows. Don't grow weary of doing good. And let us not abandon our first love. Let's make a commitment to pursue truth, to have sound doctrine as the Ephesians did, to keep each other accountable so that we're really living this thing, but let's not forsake love on the way. Let's serve him wholeheartedly, always with a passion for who he is. And maybe you've been going through the motions lately. Or maybe you've been so busy in your life that you've left love along the way and it's starting to show in the way that you commune with God and in the way that you relate to others. Today I want to recommit my heart to God. I want to repent Because it's important. Jesus says, repent and do the things you did at first. Don't just go straight into doing the things you did at first. Don't just make a commitment. Repent of the way that you haven't been worshiping me in the way that I am worthy to be worshiped. And so today, I not only want to commit to going back to my first love, but I want to repent of the many times that I have forsaken the love for Jesus. I've done things just because I have to. And I haven't loved Jesus the way that he's meant to be loved, the way he deserves to be loved. And I want to go back to doing the things I did at first, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be filled with a passion for his name, because I want to love you the way that you're meant to be loved. I want to love the church the way that you are meant to be loved. With a love not that, not that comes from Gabby, Not that comes from the way my personality is, but that I may love you with the love that goes beyond me, with the love that comes from Jesus Christ, that I may be there for you, that you may be there for each other, that I may have grace for you, that you may have grace for me and for each other. I'm believing God for great miracles in this next year. I'm believing God to do so much in this church. I'm believing God to do miracles in your life. I'm believing God to transform you. I'm believing God to change me. As Ruben was saying, I can't change myself, but I know that Jesus can. I'm believing God to, to do things in this church, to do things in the Lisbon Project, to open doors that we couldn't open. We can't possibly humanly open, but he can. I'm believing God for amazing things in your jobs, in your families, in your places of study. I'm believing God for big things. But I'm believing God to help us be the church we were designed to be. Because I want to see souls saved. I want to see people come to Jesus and realize their purpose in him. Most of all, that's what I want to see. I want to see people that are so in love with Jesus because he is worthy of it all. So I'm going to invite you to stand now. And we're going to sing this song, Jesus, we love you.
Again, it's not that you need to have this emotional experience. If, if that's not you, that's fine. But have a moment of decision, a moment of recommitment, a moment of repentance. We're going to sing, we love you. We want to come back to our first love because Jesus can see straight through you. And he's asking for your love. Jesus, thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for keeping us accountable to you. Thank you for taking the time to invest in us, to bring us back on track. God, it's a narrow road and it's a difficult road and being a Christian isn't easy, but you know, you know what you ask of us. You know the cost. You know that we have to take up our cross to follow you. You see it and you are proud of our devotion and our faithfulness. We thank you that we can come to you, God. We thank you that we can 100% depend on you. We thank you that nothing that we do is in vain because you see and you know. But God, we want to love you the way you are worthy, the way you deserve to be loved. We don't want to go through the motions. We don't want to serve with a cold heart. We don't want to become hardened to you and to each other. God, we want to love you. We want our hearts to be open to you. We love you. We want to declare that we love you. Help us do the things we did at first. Help us be eager to get into the word. Help us to have time to pray to you, to spend time in relationship with you. God, we know what it's like to be in love with someone, and we want to be in love with you. Help us get to that place again, that everything we do isn't out of mere obligation or because we're on a schedule or because we just know it's the right thing to do, but that we may do it because it's for you and you are worthy of it. Change us. Work in our hearts. Encounter us. The Bible says if you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. Draw near to him this morning. Let's sing that we love him. Amen.